<clears throat> Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another enthralling episode of the Paranautica Podcast. I am the host, Coop, and today is going to be the third installment of this series on Pizza Gate, Comet Ping Pong, yada yada. And guess what? It's your lucky day because I really don't want to make a fourth part to this. So this episode might be a little longer than usual. So that's right. You guys get a longer episode that is jam-packed full with information. And I'm not kidding. This episode is literally overflowing with information. But let me start by saying that going over the mountains of information for this series was daunting and draining to say the least. And absolutely eye-opening to say the most. And as you can imagine, it's seriously hard not to get sidetracked and start heading down one of a thousand different rabbit holes as you go sifting through the endless articles, news reports, documentaries, everything. It just gets really crazy. I mean, the entire story is crazy, especially when you legitimately consider who is actually involved and how far this thing actually goes. But, but, my dear listeners... If you recall from episode one, I mentioned the ex-Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino, a career military man through and through, and one who was very intimately involved with MKUltra, and who was stationed at the Presidio Air Force Base outside of San Francisco. But more importantly, he was also a high priest of the Temple of Set, a satanic church, since 1975. He was rubbing elbows with Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, but more importantly, he was also a high priest of the Temple of Set, a satanic church since 1975. The satanic church, obviously being started by Anton LaVey uh, back in the day, uh, starting the Church of Satan, that is. Um, so yeah, they were they were buddies. A little side note on Anton LaVey, though, he used to play the organ for his Church of Satan congregation. And in between those gigs, he'd go play the organ for a Christian church just down the street for their congregation. So that's pretty nice of him. Anyway, Michael Aquino, high priest, lieutenant colonel, not a nice dude at all. Well, he was involved in the Presidio daycare child abuse scandal and cover-up. And yes, there were satanic rituals being done. And yes, there are FBI reports online. Available for all of you to go and read for free, which details all of that. But anyway, Michael Aquino, he's dead. It was reported on the 27th of January, 2024, that he had unexpectedly died by means of suicide. I'm not sure how. I'm assuming hanging or gunshot, but I don't know yet. I didn't look, I didn't look into it too much because, I mean, this episode is crazy huge. and I, I just try not to add more to it. So that's an update. For all of you who have just been craving, just craving an update. So there, there you have it. Now, before we get started here, or as we get started here, I just wanted to say a quote from a book by Lori Handrahan. Epidemic. Quote, the global child trafficking industry may be yielding 20 to $50 billion or more per year. No one knows for sure. An estimated 1.2 million children are trafficked globally every year. One investigator calls the child pornography industry very tempting with lots of sales to be made. For example, in 2013, Germany estimated some 250,000 Germans spent $27 billion US dollars on child pornography. $27 billion in just one year by a quarter of a million people. End quote. Anyway. We have a lot to go over today, so let's do a quick rehash of parts one and two, and then we'll get started. 
In part one, we established that child sex strings with ritualistic overtones and even murder are almost commonplace in the world of the elite. This necessarily includes politics, people in authority, religion, education, Hollywood, media moguls, child protective services, orphanages, everything. I also mentioned when Presidents Reagan and Bush Sr. were caught bringing underaged callboys into the White House for sex parties. That's a verified fact, and that's just the tip of the Washington Monument. And while these people are not publicly advertising with billboards and front-page ads to meet young children and openly sexually abuse them down at the local Elks Club every Tuesday after an evening of bingo, as far as I know, there is, however, a very organized system of child sex trafficking where a lot of money is passed between grubby hands. I think we all understand that part of this at the very least. Anyway. In part one, I talked about how the emails were leaked, that being from Seth Rich, who worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and whose untimely and violent death still goes unsolved to this day. We recently found out that Judge Mazant ordered that the FBI turn over an itemized list of what was on both of Seth Rich's computers and a DVD and other belongings by January 12th, 2024. But the FBI failed to provide that and instead requested a time extension, despite it being eight years since Seth was murdered. I couldn't find any further information. We also went over a lot of names and known pedophilic code words. And we went over how Comet Ping Pong owner James Elephantis was once dating David Brock, a super powerful Democratic lobbyist who worked close with Killary. James Elephantis is pretty powerful too, though. He once was listed as number 49 of the top 50 most powerful people in Washington, D.C. for whatever reason. As we know, Comet Ping Pong became the center of attention after those leaked Clinton Podesta emails were released by WikiLeaks. And we know that it is right next door to Besta Pizza, which had an extremely similar logo to that of the FBI's known pedophilic symbols, namely the spiraled triangle. Besta Pizza is owned by Andrew Klein who is or was an attorney with the Department of Justice while Hillary was campaigning. He represented the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit and was appointed by slippery Bill Clinton when he was in the oral office. Arun Rao is or was the chief of the Southern Division of the United States Attorney's Office in the District of Maryland and also working for the Department of Justice during the same time. He worked specifically with the Child Pornography Unit. I have heard that he was also a co-owner of Besta, but I could not find anything definitive to say that he was or was not. And both men are very connected to James Alephantis, David Brock, the Clintons, Huma Abedin, George Soros, and pretty much every power player in Washington, D.C. They were essentially in charge of deciding which cases to prosecute and which cases to ignore. So, I mean, come on. Think about that for a minute. And next to Best of Pizza is another restaurant that is owned by Elephantis. It's called Buck's Fishing and Camping. And in part two, we also learned that James had purchased the Pegasus Museum, which was or is only a handful of blocks away from Comet Ping Pong and that weird little area. James Elephantis wasn't too happy about researcher Ryan O'Neill making a YouTube video about that Pegasus Museum and subsequently threatened to kill his entire family if he kept researching and posting things for the world to see, specifically about Pegasus. And what else did we learn about James Achilles Elephantis? Oh, that's right. 
that he is a Rothschild and that his name in French, Jamie Les Enfants, means lover of children. Nothing to worry about, though. It's just a name he personally chose. There was also the infamous Kill Room and the very real tunnels that lie below Connecticut Avenue and many of the other streets in the area. Any simple search about tunnels underneath that particular street will garnish numerous public records of a tunnel system. I reiterate this because still to this day, people claim that there are not tunnels in Washington, D.C., which is absolutely absurd. Anyway, moving on. We also found out that Terrasol Bistro and Artisan Gallery was right across the street from Comet, and it too had a known FBI pedophilic symbol, this one being the hand with fingers extended inside of a double heart, indicating girl lover. But they would get rid of that logo in 2017. And pretty much right next to that is the Clinton Epstein Foundation-funded business Beyond Borders, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard about. It's said to cater to the poor and impoverished children of Haiti, and we all know about the child trafficking that happened in Haiti after the major earthquake devastated the area in 2010, which also involved the Clintons and the child trafficking friend and future Amber Alert employee, Laura Silsby Gaylor. Interestingly, the person responsible for shooting a weapon inside Comet and that person's father were also in Haiti in the aftermath of that earthquake. But we'll get to that later. And then we got into panda eyes, which is absolutely horrible. And we talked about hashtag come panda and hashtag come panda hole, which were tags often used by James Elephantus and his friends on Instagram. You guys can go check out what the, that stuff means or just go listen to the last episode. We then introduced Tamara Lozado and the really fucked up website where she was openly offering nude photos of at least one infant boy as well as live video time with a young girl to quote-unquote subscribers, that website being Evie's Crib. Super creepy website. You can go to the Wayback Machine and find people's uh, snapshots of it. It's pretty creepy. And not to mention that the Lozada family are very well connected to world leaders, politicians, and other super powerful people. Just They're in. They are in that top 1%. Let's see. What else did we get into? Oh, I briefly mentioned the name Marina Abramovich and some of her rituals that she does with these elite people. One specifically known as spirit cooking, which I'm sure everyone's heard of. So that's a little refresher before we begin today's episode. Oh, I should mention this before we get started, though. It's pretty important. Puppet President Joey Depends Diapers Biden has recently appointed none other than John Podesta as the new global climate representative as John Kerry steps down after only three years on the job. His job will basically entail being the senior advisor on international climate policy, which we all know is a fucking joke. And apparently, the Biden administration believes John Podesta is the best choice for the job. Which comes at a very strange time because all this does is bring Podesta right back into the spotlight, which inevitably brings everyone else into the spotlight that is connected to Comet Ping Pong and Pizzagate. Specifically like everyone I've mentioned so far in this series and everyone that will be mentioned in this episode. So that's really great. Anyway, let's jump back to those emails for a minute. When the emails first broke into the mainstream news cycle, it brought a lot of heat on Hillary Clinton, and for legitimate and obvious reasons. But what's pretty fucked up, if anyone remembers, is 
that she deleted and or destroyed over 33,000 emails saying that they were her personal emails. She also had a private server that wasn't even authorized by the government and which also disappeared or at least damaged and destroyed before it was returned to the FBI. Regardless of that, the FBI declined to investigate. Do we have an understanding of why that is yet? And who was the head of the FBI at that time? Andrew McCabe. And he was fired in 2017 by the Attorney General with the Justice Department, Jeff Sessions, who looks like a very frightened and decaying clay turtle. And Angie was fired for essentially lying under oath about Russia and a bunch of other shit on multiple occasions. I mean, it was that and the fact that Trump hated him and the fact that he and his wife had received $700,000 from Hillary Clinton to basically not investigate her and her criminal enterprise. Trump also fired the previous FBI director, James Comey, for similar reasons in regard to his lack of investigations into Hillary. Trump would say this of Comey and McCabe. It's a great day for democracy. Sanctimonious James Comey, his boss, made McCabe look like a choir boy. He knew all about the lies and corruption going on at the highest levels of the FBI. And according to numerous media outlets, it would turn out that the FBI had discovered that the heads of the State Department were pressuring other officials to minimize Hillary's misconduct by changing the designations of the criminal codes. But let's get back to the emails. It's pretty interesting that the State Department would apprehensively acknowledge that Hillary and Barack Obama had exchanged at a minimum 18 emails through that private server of hers. And through this exchange of emails, the FBI also discovered that Obama was actually using an alias, which turned out to be Obama 725. So, yeah, obviously it's really hard to come up with an alias that does not include your actual name at least for Obama. But before that came out, John Podesta pressured Hillary's top aide in the State Department, Cheryl Mills, who I've mentioned before, to invoke executive privilege in order to block any exchanges of evidence from a congressional subpoena. And Huma Abedin was urgently requesting copies of all of the FBI's evidence before the investigations were even close to being wrapped up, which is ridiculous, and the reason why should be clear so that their legal team could prepare for what could possibly come. Then, it would be found out after a review of the FBI's investigation into Hillary's private server and communications with 13 high-profile individuals, including Obama, 725, that the Justice Department literally scrubbed Obama's name from the reports. This naturally leads a lot of people to wonder who it is that they were protecting, Hillary or Obama. Anyway, let's look at some of those leaked Podesta emails. The first is from Fred Burton, who is or was the chief security officer for a company called Stratfor. Stratfor is an intelligence gathering firm that happens to be one of many beds that Obama sleeps in. The email was sent to multiple people within the Obama-Podesta-Clinton network. The title was called, quote, get ready for Chicago hot dog Friday, end quote, and said, Quote, I think Obama spent about $65,000 of the taxpayers' money flying in pizza and hot dogs from Chicago for a private party at the White House not long ago. Assume we are using the same channels, question mark, end quote. A man named Don Kuykendall, who also worked or works at Stratford, would send a reply email to everyone saying, quote, get ready for Chicago hot dog Friday. 
to celebrate all you hot dogs out there. Eric, you can participate as well. Exclamation. End quote. Now, if we recall some of the code words, you know, pizza meaning girl and hot dogs meaning boys. So, first of all, Obama spent $65,000 of taxpayer money. That alone is absolute bullshit. Fuck that shit. We, the taxpayers, should not be thrust into an illegal operation consisting of money laundering, which is what the entire system is based off anyway. We're in it. We're doing it anyway. But, I mean, come on. That's just an extra slap in our faces. Secondly, why the hell would a president fly in $65,000 worth of pizza and hot dogs from Chicago to the White House in Washington when Washington has plenty of pizza and hot dogs? And Washington is a hell of a lot closer to New York which arguably has the best pizza and hot dogs in the United States, if not the world. And that email from Don Kuykendall, quote, to celebrate all you hot dogs out there, end quote. To celebrate all you hot dogs out there? What What does that mean? And there's also an email from Eric S. Eisenstein, who was the Eric mentioned by Don, saying that he could participate in hot dogs. So Eric is allowed to participate in hot dogs what you can participate in hot dogs anyway he sent it to the usual crew and he states that he'd love to participate in hot dogs if quote unquote we get the same waitresses with the word waitresses in quotes indicating that it stands for something other than actual waitresses then there's this email from stern td at state.gov to john podesta the ending of this reads, quote, I'm dreaming about your hot dog stand in Hawaii. End quote. Because, man, the hot dog stand business in Hawaii is straight killing it, dude. They're making a fortune out there on those sandy beaches. The wind, man, the people love their hot dogs in Hawaii, bro. That's basically their diet. It's hot dogs, melon con vino, and cola de monos. I mean, that's all. I mean... I can't even count how many American-style hot dog stands there are in Maui alone. I mean, they just line the beaches back to back. It's insane. And to add to the pizza and hot dogs being flown in from Chicago, the White House has a firm policy that states that any outside food is not allowed to be brought inside. This includes their own chefs, who are not allowed to bring any of their own supplies in, Everything has to be obtained through a very secure source. So it's pretty questionable that any food would be brought in from anywhere, including Chicago, especially $65,000 worth. I don't know. Who knows? Also, I found someone who crunched the numbers on these this pizza and hot dogs thing. So if this was a legit White House party where there were $65,000 worth of hot dogs, through their math, they found that if each hot dog cost about $5, there would be 13,000 hot dogs. If each person at this party had two hot dogs, that would be 6,500 people at the White House, which has never happened. And it just gets more ludicrous when you factor in the pizza. None of that even adds up. So speaking of chefs, though, let's, let's get into this. The chef. Obama's private chef, 43-year-old Tafari Campbell, who was an expert swimmer, was found dead on July 25th, 2023, in a pond in Edgartown, Massachusetts, near Obama's $12 million summer home, in about eight feet of water, more than 12 hours after he was reported missing to the FBI by a female caller at the Obama's residence around 8 p.m. 
There is a lot of suspiciousness that surrounds his death, like most things in this entire story. But apparently, there was a second person with Tafari who was not identified, who has not been identified. There's also a weird inconsistency with the 9-11 dispatch call log, because while every other call that night had a full description and address, phone number, timestamp, and the reason for the call, such as medical emergency or disturbance or even 9-11 hang-up, well, the call made from the Obamas was just left blank. So what makes all this even more interesting is that just weeks before his death, Tafari had revealed some critical information to investigators, which allegedly linked Barack to child sex crimes. He was apparently writing a memoir of sorts of his time of being their chef. And get this, the Clintons also had a White House chef that drowned. His name was Walter Sheeb. He served through the Clintons regime and then into the Bushes regime. And in 2005, he decided to leave the White House and work closely with the Clintons. But in June of 2015, leading up to this whole Pizzagate scandal involving the Clintons, he was found dead while hiking in the mountains of New Mexico. The 61-year-old was reported missing by his girlfriend the day after he failed to return home. Walter was also writing a book about his experiences as a White House chef. And since we're on the subject of Barack Obama... He sent an email to John Podesta in October of 2012 titled, John, can you make some calls for Virginia? The email itself said this. John, volunteers are making phone calls to support Virginia this Monday. Can you join them? Here are the details. What phone bank in Washington? Um, where? 5037 Connecticut Avenue, um, Washington, D.C. When... Monday, October 22nd, shifts start at 5. I wish you would hold me like you used to, John. Does that address sound familiar? 5037 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest Washington, D.C. Well, it should, because that's the address of Comet Ping Pong. There's a phone bank. Phone bank at Comet Ping Pong. Barack Obama is saying there is a phone bank at Comet Ping Pong. Okay? All right, moving on. Anyway, let's bring it back to those code words. I mentioned others in part one. For example, sauce is code for orgy, and dominoes is code for domination or BDSM. And let's look at this next email from Herbert Sandler, who was the former CEO of World Savings Bank. The subject is cheese. Okay? Why? Why cheese? Anyway, he typed... Quote, do you think I'll do better playing dominoes on cheese than on pasta? End quote. Who says that? And what the hell would that ever mean in a typical general conversation? Unless you were using a specific code word, you know, or code words between your close friends for a very specific reason, right? Then there are multiple emails from multiple different people talking about walnut sauce. They are literally obsessed with walnut sauce. It's crazy. Or how about this other email between Tony, John, and Mary Podesta? Tony says to John, Mary, not free, would love to get a pizza for an hour or come over. John replies, Are you free Sunday mid-afternoon? Tony says, Yes, only want to see you and Mike Berman. John asks, How was the trip? John is asking about Tony's trip to Somalia. Tony replies, 
very good. I'm seated with the kids, so a little wired. Okay, so first, who orders pizza for an hour? Answer me that. Clearly, pizza is code for something else that can be reused or something. Pizza is not something a person rents for an hour. Doesn't make sense. Then there's that wired part that Tony says. Who gets wired when they're sitting with a bunch of children? It's like, oh yeah, I'm sitting with the kids, man. I'm fucking wired right now, man. Oh man, I'm wired. Like, who does that? Who does that? I mean, it's all so strange. And I could not find out who this Mike Berman character is. Nothing could, nothing came up in the searches. Um, I think it might be an alias. I don't know, unless someone knows. Email me. I don't know. I couldn't find it. But let's move on. Let's move on with uh, Bong Rip. Sounds like a, a plan to be had here. So now that we're up to speed, let's begin this with Marina Abramovich. She was born to a couple of political activists named Vojin and Danica Abramovich, who were Yugoslavian partisans during the Second World War. Their contributions to the efforts led to her father working with state security while her mother became the head of the Museum of Art. Marina Abramovich studied at both Belgrade's Academy of Fine Arts and Zagreb's Academy of Fine Arts. She became somewhat popular amongst a certain crowd after her 1987 performance titled Spirit Cooking, for which she's so famous for today. The video of this has since made its rounds on the internet and can be found on YouTube and pretty much any other video hosting platform. Just look up Spirit Cooking. It's a ritual I mentioned in part one, which calls for the use of human sperm, human breast milk, human blood, and the animal equivalents. And on a wall, she writes in blood, quote, With a sharp knife, cut deeply into the middle finger of your left hand. Eat the pain. End quote. And it is this ritual that pulled Marina Abramovich into the fold of all of this. That's because spirit cooking made headlines in 2016 after WikiLeaks released all of those emails. And one of those emails was from John Podesta's brother, Tony, who had invited John to attend one of these spirit cookings. In 2013, she was being reported as a witch and accused of practicing Satanism, and rightfully so. That is because she is a witch, as she self-proclaims, and her rituals and beliefs are rife with Satanism. Nevertheless, she decided to create an institute, the Marina Abramovich Institute, in order to allow people to experiment with her method and to be connected to one's body and mind so as to be in a state of absolute serenity. She says the point is to remember that, quote, the function of the artist in a disturbed society is to give awareness of the universe, to ask the right questions, and to elevate the mind, end quote. In addition, she defines the word performance during a TED Talk using these words, quote, the performance is a mental and physical construction that a performer makes in a specific time in a space in front of an audience, and then energy dialogue happens. The audience and the performer make the piece together. It's all about being there in real time. And you can't rehearse performance because you can't do many of these types of things twice ever. All human beings are always afraid of 
very simple things. We're afraid of suffering or pain of mortality. So I'm staging these kinds of fears in front of the audience. I'm using your energy, and with this energy, I can go and push my body as far as I can. And then, I liberate myself from these fears, and I am your mirror. If I can do this for myself, you can do it for you. End quote. And this is kind of interesting because with adrenochrome, the energy of adrenaline that rushes through the blood is caused by pain, suffering, and fear. The intention with the production of fresh adrenochrome is to frighten the child to such an extent that to you and I is unthinkable. But this fear, pains, and suffering is what ultimately releases the chemical compound known as adrenochrome into the blood. And the saturated blood is then either drained from the body or consumed straight from the wound, such as that made from a knife. And in one of her 1997 performances in Venice, which was to denounce all war, but especially the Balkan War, she locked herself in a room for four days to wash a pile of cow's bones. The stated purpose was to try to scrub the bones clean of blood while behind her, a video was being projected on the wall which went over a visual history of the wars of Yugoslavia. And apparently the metaphor she was portraying was about the impossibility of cleaning the bones, saying that the blood caused by war can never be cleansed of the hands that were involved, or something along those lines, which I can agree with. I agree with that one. I agree the I agree with that one. That's great. Just sit there and watch for four hours. But it said that she has been inspired by occult sacrament ritual stemming from Aleister Crowley's doctrine of Thelema, which has been loosely categorized as sex magic, which is often coupled with traditional tantras. However, while Thelema in and of itself is not inherently evil, Thelema has been historically used in dark occultism and black magic. And this sacramental aspect is the consideration of a human's body fluids being charged with a metaphysical energy and or electrical energy. In terms of scientific analysis, psychiatrist Wilhelm Reich, who was known for his practicing analytical theories of what he called orgone energy, which was a scientific observation of the human body as an electromagnetic conductor of sorts, channeling energy of the mental, physical, and spiritual aspects in a form that is manifested in the expression of the physical body. Practicing occultists say that the bodily fluids of a human also have concentrated energetic uses, hence why Marina Abramovich uses sperm, breast milk, and blood in her rituals. Additionally, looking at the videos of Abramovich's art, it seems a rather dark practice which also entails mock and quite possibly real cannibalism. The Clintons and many other famous guests have attended these rituals. People like Lady Gaga, Jay-Z, Beyonce, and even the family favorite Will Ferrell. And that's just naming a few. In 2016, to return the favor of being invited to one of these rituals, Hillary Clinton invited Marina to her presidential campaign launch party. So, ooh-wee, fun times. Marina is also good friends with the Rothschilds, Jacob Rothschild specifically. And there's a popular picture of the two standing together in front of a large 1797 family painting called Satan Summoning His Legions. Yeah, check that one out. It's pretty creepy. 
She also rubs elbows quite deeply with Bill Gates. And actually, not too long ago, Microsoft deleted a YouTube advertisement for some of her art after users had made complaints about it, and rightfully so. It was uploaded to YouTube on April 10th. The video was an advertisement for the tech company's HoloLens 2 product, which allows users to see some mixed reality bullshit. And the product resembles a headset, but unlike virtual reality, a viewer's outside surroundings can still be accessed while wearing it. Marina's new art is called The Life, and debuted it in uh, 2019 at London's Serpentine Galleries and features Marina walking around for a while. It's pretty exhilarating stuff. The two-minute ad that was pulled features interviews about the art, but was deleted after it received 24,000 dislikes. So what do some of her art performances look like? A lot of them are pretty dumb, but I'll go over a few that are noteworthy. Her first performance was in 1973 and was called The Russian Game. It consisted of taking 20 knives and laying her hand down on a table where she proceeded to play that fun game of not stabbing yourself as you stab the table between your fingers while trusting your own hand-eye coordination. She also took two tape recorders to record the sounds of the knives hitting the table and also the sounds of her wincing in pain when she stabbed herself. So she would repeat this process every time she stabbed herself. She would just pick up a new knife repeat the process until all 20 knives were used, so she stabbed herself 20 times. Then, if that wasn't fun enough, she then recreated the performance using the sounds that she recorded. Her goal was to record her same movements and same sounds, including her winces of pain. So that is pretty fucking awesome. Really exciting and productive stuff. In her second performance in 1974, she lit a fire within a pentagram drawn on a floor into which she threw her toenails, fingernails, and hair. Then, as the fire died down and the room filled with carbon monoxide, she jumped into the center of the pentagram where she would actually pass out from lack of oxygen, apparently. And apparently nobody noticed at first. Uh, They were just too busy talking amongst each other. But eventually, she was dragged off a stage and tended to. In her third performance, also in 1974, she took some medication that is prescribed to patients who suffer from catatonia, which is a super complex disorder that causes the person to suddenly make abnormal movements and do abnormal shit, or they might just become completely still. At any rate, she took this medication, which forced her muscles to violently contract as she writhed on the floor for a good minute. And after she came to, she was once again in control of her body, She decided to take a 10-minute break, sip on some tonic water, and then take another medication that is prescribed to schizophrenic patients with violent disorders. The idea was to calm her down. The performance, if you can call it that, lasted five hours and was officially ended once the medication wore off. Again, really fun stuff here. I don't recommend that. She also directed a segment in a movie or something called Balkan Erotic Epic, which is a compilation of erotic films made in 2006. I didn't look into it, but I'm sure it was a compilation of all of her favorite close-up Harry snapshots from 1980s porno films starring Ron Jeremy or something. Who knows? But more recently, more recently though, she inaugurated the Crystal Wall of Crying, which is a monument at the site of a Holocaust massacre in Ukraine. 
In 2022, she played her part to condemn what those of us who are awake know as the orchestrated Russian invasion of Ukraine by voicing her paid-for contempt. And in 2023, she was the first woman in 255 years to be invited to give a solo show in the main galleries of the Royal Academy, obviously to return the favor. Also in 2023, and as I mentioned in part one, Ukraine's president and coke addict Vladimir Zelensky appointed her to be an ambassador of Ukraine, again, obviously to return a favor. The stated mission is to build some schools in war-torn Ukraine, which puts her in a position of great power and authority over thousands upon thousands of poor and impoverished children. This is concerning for a variety of reasons. We all know that the best places to kidnap and traffic children are places that have been ravished by famine, poverty, disasters, and war. It's no secret. It's just a fact. Not only are there a larger number of orphans in these types of areas, but there are a larger number of parents who literally sell their children out of sheer desperation. Don't believe me? Just look up any fucking wartime and look at how much child trafficking happens during all wartime. Anyway, what does Ukraine look like right now? Well, it's pretty ravished, and the economic and political situation has made it a hotbed for child sex trafficking and a hub for adrenochrome factories. That's right, adrenochrome. Now, everyone is aware that Russia's favorite dictator, Vladimir Putin, will blatantly lie from the world stage to the world audience, and most people probably realize that he will lie just as fast as Joseph Biden or Donald Trump, or Barack Obama, or George Bush Jr., or William Clinton, or George Bush Sr., or Ronald Reagan, or even Vladimir Zelensky, for that matter, who, by the way, just so everyone knows, was a struggling comic and a C actor, not even a B actor, before he somehow became Ukraine's president. But according to the Kremlin, Zelensky's regime has been running a massive child sex market out of Ukraine. Take it as you will. You can obviously just see for yourself through investigations, or you can believe Vladimir Putin. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to just look at the facts. I mean, people do this research for a reason, and these researchers never get on mainstream television. But look, 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 look. I can't sit here and say with 100% certainty that the Kremlin is being honest, because to believe any world leader of any government would be absolutely foolish and simple-minded. But I can say that without a doubt, the recipe for operating a global child sex market out of war-torn Ukraine has been perfect for the past few years. Look at it. And while the Western legacy media would never cover such a story, as I said, there was a whistleblower who worked with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, her name Vera Weyman, who gave her testimony about what she had witnessed in Ukraine and said that the children are being shipped out of the country using a grain export code and mass. And I don't know if you've seen. I mean, videos pop. Videos are popping up on Twitter. The videos of people being found in containers. I mean, we've been seeing that for a long time. Shipping containers have been shipped over here forever, and dead people are found. Live people are found. Children, adults. Um, I mean, it's it's always happening. It's always happening, but. According to Atmos and Kids, reports of suspected child sex trafficking has increased 846% from 2010 to 2015. It's quite, quite a big, big jump. Quite a big jump. I mean, come on. Increased 846% in 2010 to 2015. 
846%. Go check out a hashtag end human trafficking. You'll find a lot of crazy statistics on that. But anyway, let's get into the adrenochrome. Oh, everyone wants to talk about adrenochrome. Well, I would like to remind everyone that every year in the United States, anywhere between around 400,000 and 800,000 children go missing. And worldwide, that number explodes to approximately 8 million. And that's just children. So what is adrenochrome? Adrenochrome is a chemical compound with the molecular formula 9 carbon, 9 hydrogen, 1 nitrogen, 3 oxygen. It's been known in modern science since at least the 1930s and is produced by the oxidation of adrenaline or epinephrine in mammals. The chemical concentrates in the body during times of extreme fear and terror. Adrenochrome was the subject of limited research from the 1950s through to the 1970s as a potential cause of schizophrenia. And while it has no current medical application, the related derivative compound, carbazochrome, is a homostatic medication, which is a type of drug that is administered intravenously during emergencies to reduce hemorrhaging. I'll mention here that it was the Rockefellers who funded and overlooked those studies. Adrenochrome usage is supposed to give you an immense high and slow the aging process. This is why it is said that adrenochrome is so popular in Hollywood, where these celebrities seem to age at a much slower process than us non-celebrities. The way adrenochrome is extracted, in terms of how it relates to Pizzagate, involves the torturing of children in the worst way as possible. And the sacrificing of children is not a new age thing either. That's been happening for thousands of years. The ancient Egyptians used to do blood sacrifices, as well as the Olmec, the Maya, the Aztec, Mexico, and Central America. Vlad the Impaler, he also drank blood and is said to have done all sorts of satanic rituals. And guess who's related to Vlad, by the way? The royal family. That's right. It's true. The woman who people put on a pedestal, the so-called queen, openly talked about her direct lineage to Vlad the Impaler, as did Prince Philip, her son, who actually went on to purchase Vlad's old castle to keep it in the family, like a lot of other things, such as romantic relationships. And just another side note here, in 2017, a Belgium court is said to have found Queen Elizabeth, along with Prince Philip, Pope Benedict, and some other officials, uh, they were found guilty by the International Common Law Court of Justice in Brussels for the disappearances of 10 native children from the Catholic-run Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia. Of course, nothing happened. I mean, you can go back and look at records. The, the, the Vatican, the Queen, they've been fingered for crimes against children in Canada for decades. For decades, man. Just go look on. Just go look on the internet. Go look on the archives. Go look back on the archives about that because you're, you're going to find a lot of shit. Anyway, adrenochrome has been mentioned in literature and film for years. In his 1954 book, *The Doors of Perception*, Aldous Huxley mentioned the discovery and alleged effects of adrenochrome, which he likened to the effects of mescaline. Anthony Burgess mentions adrenochrome in his 1962 novel *A Clockwork Orange* where it was the adrenochrome that was mixed with the milk they loved to drink. And, of course, we're all familiar with the Hunter S. Thompson mention in his 1971 book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, 
which was later adapted to film starring Johnny Depp. Hunter S. Thompson also mentions Adrenochrome in his book, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72. On page 140, he says, It was sometime after midnight in a ratty hotel room, and my memory of the conversation is haze due to massive ingestion of booze, fatback, and 40 cc's of Adrenochrome. End quote. In the research being conducted under the Rockefellers, Professors Humphrey Osmond and Abraham Hoffer were the lead scientists. In 1962, Dr. Hoffer reviewed many of the clinical trials of the psychological effects of adrenochrome on humans. Of their research, he would say, quote, Some of the changes produced by adrenochrome may persist several days, and in some cases, the effects nearly led to disastrous results. These experiences with adrenochrome have made us quite cautious with this drug, which seems to be so mild in its action, but which can be so dangerous because of the lack of insight it induces in some subjects. End quote. That's alarming. That's pretty crazy. And get this. Adrenochrome is even available to purchase online. Anyone can buy it, and it's legal. Obviously, it's not straight up children's blood, but the synthesized form is sold in powders, liquids, and tablets. The prices range due to the different purity and quality, but from what I found, you can buy set weights at a given price between $60 to $2,000. But that was just from a couple websites I looked at really quick. There are plenty of companies that specialize in synthesizing adrenochrome in vast, vast, vast quantities, and the vast majority of those being in China as well. So, I mean, and obviously, the synthetic stuff is not as good as the real stuff, which is why these elite and rich people prefer the real thing, young children. And this is pretty interesting because the mainstream media has picked up on the story, but not as a way to like demonize it, almost as a way to like prop it up. So let's listen to this CBS report. On the Health Watch, could the secret to eternal youth be found in blood transfusions from young people? Health reporter Stephanie Stahl has more on a controversial new treatment that's being tested. Transfusions with young blood from teenagers, some claim it can reverse the aging process. It's being tested in patients over the age of 35 as part of a clinical trial called Ambrosia, where people paid $8,000 to get the rich growth factors found in blood plasma platelets. It's pretty much people from most states, people from overseas, from Europe and Australia. Results of the trial have not been published, but Dr. Jesse Karzeman, who plans to open a business selling young blood, says patients who've had it say they feel amazing. And he says he's seen evidence of reversing the aging process in rats. Their brains are younger, hearts, their, their hair, if it was gray, it turns dark again. There's also been encouraging Alzheimer's research using young blood at Stanford. So yeah, there's that. Get some blood transfusions. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, this would be a great time to introduce another guy, Peter Nygaard. He was once a fashion icon who began to make bold claims about finding a modern-day fountain of youth. The 70-year-old designer moved from Winnipeg, Canada, to the Bahamas and launched a biotech company and hired four scientists to work on stem cell technology. According to Nygaard, his doctors made a scientific breakthrough and turned skin cells into embryonic stem cells. Of course, this wasn't backed up by independent studies, but he claimed that he was reverse aging. In a video he made, he would go on to say this. From the woman's egg, we took our DNA, put my old 70-year-old DNA in its 
place and grew it in vitro. I may be the only person in the world who is my own. I may be the only person in the world. <coughs> I may be. The- <coughs> I may be the only person in the world who has my own embryonic stem cells growing in a petri dish. Um. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He's crazy. From the woman's egg, we took out her DNA, put my old seventy-year-old DNA in its place, and grew it in vitro. I may be the only person in the world who has my own embryonic stem cells grown in a petri dish. Now that all sounds really great and all, but this next part is what makes you furl the eyebrow a bit. Peter Nygaard wanted to get his girlfriends pregnant and have abortions so he could use the fetuses for age-defying stem cell research. So this kind of makes you wonder where that skin was actually coming from. Probably wasn't coming from him. So this information comes as the 79-year-old fashion mogul was charged with sex trafficking after he allegedly abused girls as young as 14 between the 1980s and 2000s. A handful of years ago, U.S. prosecutors demanded his arrest in Canada, and he faced extradition on charges of sex assault, racketeering, and trafficking. The mogul, who has a net worth of around 700 million pounds, strongly denies all the allegations against him. I don't know how much it is. That's probably like 900,000 or 900 million US dollars. The tycoon allegedly ended up establishing his stem cell research company on the island of St. Kitts near his home in the Bahamas, which lies about 100 miles southeast from Jeffrey Epstein's Little St. James Island, which was actually purchased by billionaire Stephen Dekoff in May of 2023 for a cold $60 million through his firm SD Investments. So it is now Stefan Dekoff's Little St. James Island. An ex-girlfriend of Nygaard, Soiline Maderos, wrote in a 2014 memoir about a trip she took with Peter Nygaard to none other than Ukraine, where he was having stem cell research done. So that should raise some fucking red flags in itself. Does it not raise red flags? If anybody does any research into like what happens in the world... The connections are ridiculous. So you have all this other shit going on in Ukraine, child trafficking. And then you have Peter Nygaard, another billionaire doing stem cell research where he wants to get women pregnant to take their fetuses. He's in Ukraine doing shit. I mean, come on, guys. Wake the fuck up. You know what I'm saying? Not my listeners. My listeners are amazing. You guys are fucking awesome. I'm talking about the other people who aren't listeners yet. So I need you guys to go out there and tell people to come listen to this show because I'm fucking giving you information that you're not going to get elsewhere or unless you just do a lot of fucking research. So tell them to come here. Helping this podcast grow. I, I need more support. I need support for more people. And I'm trying to make it as good as possible for you guys and you know and i'm going to continue doing it i'm going to give you quality content i'm going to give you all this i'm going to pretty soon here i'm working on it right now to put this onto youtube with actual videos so pitch me five bucks or something you know buy me a coffee i don't know anyway sorry so peter nygaard okay he would ask swaylene maderos swaylene do you know what the best stem cells are to which she replied embryos nygaard responds correct if you got pregnant and had an abortion we could use those embryonic cells and have a life supply for all of us you your mother and me a lot of people are doing it swayleen responded peter i do not believe in abortion and that 
that put an end to it. Nygaard probably just like take was taken aback, like oh, how how dare you? And then they broke up because she's an ex girlfriend, so he probably booted her at that point. But the former Canadian fashion icon Peter Nygaard has been found guilty on four counts of sexual assault after five women testified that he used a private bedroom suite in his company headquarters to assault them. Of course. These are not the worst crimes the man committed. As we all know, plea deals are made where numerous counts of criminal conduct are removed from the charges, typically the worst crimes, to plead down to, you know, something a little less severe. The verdict of guilty was right after five days of deliberation, which would have been absolute hell to sit through. Five days of that? Anyways, Canadian police arrested him at the request of U.S. authorities. And as it turns out, the U.S. federal government has been investigating Nygaard for sex trafficking accusations since at least 2015. And just think about these dates. It's always these dates of everything is around 2015, around 2016. Like what? Everything was weird was happening around this time. Like all this weird shit was going on between 2015 to like 2017. A lot of weird shit was happening. And Nygaard has been accused of rape by his own sons, saying that their father had arranged for them to be raped by his own friends and colleagues when they were just children. He's basically the Canadian Jeffrey Epstein, but probably a little worse I mean, he did all the same things to get young girls from low-income homes and fly them to his 150,000-square-foot resort on his private island in the Bahamas. And authorities found over 7,000 names in his own little books that he had, much like Epstein. And did he and Epstein know each other? I mean, it's highly possible. They had a lot of the same friends. Both owned islands in the Bahamas only about 100 miles apart. So probably they also had one mutual friend really high roller man this guy was high roller prince andrew mutual friend of theirs who was also dealing with his own shit in relation to epstein and the victims of that particular network anyway there have been numbers of people who have been victims of ritualistic abuse and have seen very real things happen before their own eyes they have witnessed these elite people subject children to levels of torture and trauma that we can't even fathom as a means to extract a higher potency of adrenochrome within the blood. Even Oprah has been accused of this. Now let's listen to Teresa's story during an interview that she gave back in 1989 to 60 Minutes Australia. Her story is about escaping a brutal satanic cult that she was trapped in for 12 years. I just want to note that I did edit this for time. So if anyone wants to hear the entire interview, just search for 60 Minutes Australia, Teresa's story. All right, here it is. We started investigating these secret satanic cults when a British member of parliament linked them with the ritual murder of children. In this day and age, it sounded too far-fetched, as did suggestions that the same thing might be happening in Australia. But then we met Teresa. She's only 15, and for 12 of those years, she's been the victim of relentless depravity. Friends were family and strangers, and my family used to rape me, make me uh, abort the babies I had. It would be hard to imagine more misery and suffering than what Teresa says she's had to endure. And us kids would be made to do things with the adults and the animals. And then a, a sacrifice would happen. The sacrifice? Uh, were these animal sacrifices? Animals and um, people. Teresa is now 15, but at the age of two, she was left in the care of this woman, the grandma she called Nan. And that, she says, 
is when a torment started. Who was the leader? Who was, uh, who was the boss of the gang, of the cult? At home, it was my nan. Your nan uh, made you have sex with animals? Yeah. Um, like goats and donkeys. How many men or how many people would have sex with you? Well, at one time. Yes. About everyone who was there, which must have been about 20, you know, from 10 to 20 people. If it was a, a big ceremony, it used to be 30. What would your grandma be doing when these men were forcing themselves on you? Usually laughing or smiling or having sex with another man or other men. I know what's true and what's not. No, I know what I saw. This couldn't be a terrible dream, a nightmare that you're reliving? No. It's no dream. It's a nightmare, but it's, it's not one you can wake up from. It's there all the time. This really happened? You're quite sure of that? Yeah. The police don't think Teresa made up a story. Some of the cult members are to stand trial. Five men have been charged with rape. As for Nan, the grandmother, she's 61 and lives in this council flat in South London. She's charged on seven counts of aiding and abetting rape and two counts of performing abortions on Teresa. There was a tramp who was brought in once you know, and he was killed. He was cut from his throat down to his stomach. And uh, they, they ate him, or bits of him. They killed a man at a ceremony? Yeah. In front of you? Yeah, in front of all of, the, all of us. Did the tramp, did this man uh, fight back? No, I think he was you know, drunk or something. He seemed really dopey. He was laughing a lot when he was brought in. He started screaming when they began to cut. But after a while, you know, he died. I'd seen a few killings before then. Although I wasn't used to it, it you know, that was the worst one. I really don't know what I thought. I suppose I thought, thank God it's not me. Let me get this right now. Uh, are you saying that you saw more than one person killed in that house? Yeah. I've seen um, loads of babies killed there. Just newborn babies. Or aborted ones, which were only small. You know, four-year-olds. Any age, really. Did they ever say they might kill you? Uh, they threatened to kill my little girl, who, when I left, was still at the house. A friend? Huh? You mean you had a child? Yeah. How old were you when you had that child? Eleven. Mm. What happened to the pregnancy, to the babies? Um, they were aborted. I'm a nan or by one of the doctors at the house. 
there were doctors there at that house? Yeah, there was um, two, I think, and a nurse. What would happen uh, to the fetuses, the unborn babies? They used to be taken away most of the time, and one time the baby was taken out of me and then killed in front of me because it was still alive. And then uh, what would happen? Well, after they killed it, they would eat it. We were also made to eat it. You were made to eat your own fetus? Yeah. Who made you do this? My nan. Did you ever try to, to run away? Must have been frightened. A couple of times I did, but my uncle, he caught me and brought me back. Going to the police? Did that occur to you? No. No. I thought it was normal, you know, even though I didn't like it. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean, you don't like to eat greens, but, you, you know, somehow, you, you know, you thought, I thought it was just her being called to be kind or something like that. How did they get rid of the bodies? They had um, a very big tub and they used to put the bodies and bones in there. And it used to go like, you know, fizzy in there. And then there was nothing left. Or well, it didn't seem to be, but when they cleared it out, there used to be a sludge at the bottom. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bad. Now, it's been said that once these rich and powerful people get a taste of adrenochrome and experience its said-to-be-dazzling effects, they become so addicted that if they go for a while without drinking it, their withdrawal symptoms appear to be far worse than heroin withdrawal. But luckily for them, there's a market. You just have to know the connections. Now listen to this segment by the Associated Press. South Korea reports seizing thousands of smuggled drug capsules containing an unusual added ingredient, the powdered flesh from dead babies. Some people believe they can cure disease. The Korea Customs Service says they were made in northeastern China from babies whose bodies were chopped into small pieces and dried on stoves before being turned into powder. But they wouldn't say where they believe the babies came from or exactly who made the capsules, citing possible diplomatic friction with Beijing. The contents, though, were identified by scientific testing. When we analyzed it, the powdered material sequence is better than a 99.7% match with a human DNA sequence. No one's been reported ill from ingesting them, but scientist Shin Ulgi warns they have the potential to be dangerous. We also see superbacteria and other germs and viruses harmful to a person if consumed. Some of the capsules were carried in luggage. Others were sent by international mail. The smugglers told customs officials they believed the capsules were ordinary stamina boosters and didn't know the manufacturing process. One official said no one's been punished, but a customs clearance director at Incheon Airport warned consumers should be careful about health food supplements where the ingredients aren't clearly marked. Karen Sloan, The Associated Press. So that's pretty crazy. And now we know what adrenochrome is and why these elite power players are all about it. Shall we move on to Huma Abedin and Hillary Clinton? 
Yes, we shall. And I will play this first because it sums everything up pretty well before we move on. So what all was found on this laptop? Well, the NYPD source says that the Wiener laptop has enough evidence to put Hillary away for life. It said that these emails include evidence linking Clinton herself and associates to money laundering, child exploitation, sex crimes with minors, perjury, pay to play through the Clinton Foundation, obstruction of justice, and other felony crimes. It's worth noting that this is not the first time the Clintons have been tied to crimes involving exploitation of children. Remember Laura Silsby, who was convicted of child trafficking? Internet sleuths discovered apparent evidence of pedophile code words being used and emails from John Podesta released by WikiLeaks. This was in November of 2016. Hillary Rodham Clinton, just when we think it can't get any worse with some of these corruptions we've heard about her, apparently there was a hidden file on Wiener's laptop with a video in it entitled Insurance Policy. Understand, this is no longer a conspiracy. There were a total of 12 individuals who saw this video, and nine of those 12 people are dead now. So far this year, there have been nine NYPD suicides, seven since June. Last year, there were a total of four. According to QAnon, the infamous White House insider, President Trump's recent announcement that he is going after high-profile sex offenders is directly related to this video. The bad video is of Hillary, Huma, and a little girl. They are terrorizing the child. They filleted the child's face off while she was alive and put it on their faces to further terrorize the child. They were deliberately causing the child's body to release adrenochrome into the bloodstream so they could drink the blood when they bled her out in the satanic ritual sacrifice. This was what caused grown men to become extremely sick and many needed to seek out psychological help after viewing it. The perpetrators all need to be hung by the neck until dead. Hillary and Huma Abedin have known each other for decades, something like 30 plus years at this point. So the idea that those two are up to some nasty shenanigans is probably right on point. Huma met Hillary when she, Huma, was still a student in Washington back in 1996 when Hillary was the first lady to Hillary Clinton. Huma began working as Hillary's intern at the same time as Monica Lewinsky was working as Billary's intern. That's a little interesting, isn't it? In 2000, Hillary ran for U.S. Senate and Huma landed herself a job as Hillary's aide and personal confidant. When Hillary became Secretary of State to Barack Obama, Huma started working as Hillary's chief of staff, which is probably more of a curse than a blessing. She then became Hillary's top advisor when she ran for her embarrassing campaign to become president in 2016. Huma gave an interview with Vogue in 2016 and spoke very lovingly of Hillary and about the special bond that they shared. And as we all know, Huma was married to Anthony Weiner, who was a U.S. representative with New York's 9th Congressional District. He was arrested and convicted for transferring obscene material to a minor and sentenced to 21 months in a federal prison. But as we all know, there was a lot more going on there, and he basically got what is called a sweetheart deal. When the authorities took his laptop to run forensics on it, they found a shit ton of incriminating evidence against a lot of powerful people in Washington, D.C., especially Hillary. According to the reports, which have been swept under the rug, there was a lot of evidence to prove not only treason, but also sex trafficking, 
pedophilic exploits, a bunch of money laundering, and a whole list of crimes that would lock you and I away for probably life. It's also important to note that it wasn't just Anthony Weiner's laptop. It was also Huma Abedin's laptop, who also used it quite frequently, possibly more so than Weiner. I'll also note here that the two of them would divorce after this incident, but would secretly get back together in the preceding years, which continues into this day. The FBI agent who was in possession and pretty much in charge of the laptop, John Robertson, said he was ordered to basically destroy all of the evidence that was on the laptop. Reportedly, the evidence included hundreds of thousands of emails sent to and from Hillary Clinton, which makes sense considering that the two were besties. Robertson stated that the FBI was not interested in investigating the evidence or pursuing any charges against any top officials. And in an interview he gave to the Daily Mail in 2018, he is quoted as saying, The crickets I was hearing was really making me uncomfortable because something was going to come crashing down, and my understanding, which is uninformed because I didn't work the Hillary Clinton matter. My understanding at the time was I am telling you people I have private Hillary Clinton emails, number one, and BlackBerry messages, number two. I'm telling you that we have potentially ten times the volume that Director Comey said we had on the record. And all of this is really interesting because what Robertson said was substantiated by a law enforcement official named Doug Hagman, who came forward with similar claims also in 2016. He also claimed that the laptop was packed full of evidence which showed that Hillary and other Democrat insiders were committing many serious crimes. It involves Hillary Clinton, Huma Abedin, and Bill Clinton, as well as Jeffrey Epstein. According to my source, these files exist, he did not touch these files so he doesn't know what's in them, but the fact that they exist on this computer suggests some sort of overlap here. Sidney Powell, the lawyer of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, would also corroborate these statements, saying that the Clintons' emails revealed not only a litany of crimes, but specifically the types of crimes that caused hardened investigators to throw up. Let's listen to that audio right now. One of the things if I were the president I'd do is demand the Anthony Weiner laptop and get it to the most trusted person in the military to take apart everything on it and then start using it. There's a lot that can be prosecuted. I have no doubt on that laptop. In fact, I heard that the New York police officers who saw some of it, even though they're hardened investigators, literally had to go throw up. It's bad. Okay. So we hear them say that there is a lot of evidence that would put Hillary away for life. But what exactly are they referring to? Well, let's listen to Representative Jamie Raskin ask Google CEO Sundar Pakai some interesting things during a hearing. One of the videos discussed included images of a body on a table before restrained children and of Hillary Clinton with a bloodied mouth and fangs claiming that she and Abedin drank the blood of their victim. That was removed, but then another consisting of an exact copy of the video remained online or apparently remains online. Um, So, uh, I mean, is your basic position that this is something you want to try to do something about, but basically
plea, there's just an avalanche of such material and there's really nothing that can be done and it should be buyer beware or consumer beware when you go on YouTube. You know, we do grapple with difficult issues. Maybe we have to look at it on a video by video basis and we have clearly stated policies. So we would need to evaluate whether the video, the specific video. In her own 2017 book, What Happened?, Killary explains that it was suggested that she cut ties with Huma once they both learned that the FBI investigation had been reopened. When we heard this, Huma looked stricken. Anthony had already caused so much heartache, and now this. She added that they were on a plane at the time and Huma started crying. Killary also shared that seeing her closest friend in distress was particularly difficult for her. Killary admitted that there was no chance she was going to cut Aberdeen out of her life or let alone fire her, noting, I stuck by her the same way she has always stuck by me. Bill Clinton even officiated Huma's and Anthony's wedding in 2010, where Killary is reported to have said, I have one daughter, but if I had a second daughter, it would be Huma. So... It's pretty clear that Killary would much rather have had Huma Abedin as her only child rather than her actual daughter, Chelsea. It's clear. That's obvious. That should be obvious to everybody. Okay, so if this file named frazzled.rip that was found on Huma and Anthony's laptop in the folder called insurance is legit and that 9 out of 12 New York policemen have viewed the video or videos have committed suicide, then the question is this, how was the video originally leaked to the dark web where it has reportedly been viewed thousands of times? That is a great question. So there is this other guy, a pretty powerful dude named Peter Dalglish, who was a senior advisor to the UN Health Organization and was celebrated for all his charitable causes for at-risk children over a period of 30 years. He earned numerous awards for his humanitarianism and was given the Canadian equivalent of British knighthood. And there's another connection, the Canadian connection. It's generally understood that it was he that was responsible for leaking a copy of the infamous pedophilia snuff film to the dark web. But by this point in time, Peter was being sought by law enforcement for molesting young boys in Nepal. Frazzled.rip and related videos were posted by Dalglish as he was fleeing from Nepal and he had been threatening to release the videos to blackmail powerful people in an attempt to avoid arrest. Those threats weren't successful and he was arrested in Kathmandu where he was convicted and sentenced to eight years of prison for molesting two young boys. Let's back up a little bit. In 1988, Peter Dalglish started the Canadian-based organization Street Kids International, which later merged with Save the Children in 2015. Interestingly, about one year later, in December of 2016, the charity organization revoked its registration after Donald Trump became president. Three days later, Dalglish was in Nepal as a wanted man. He knew that the CIA and its director, Mike Pompeo, who later became Secretary of State under Donald Trump, were after him and were closing in. So, as it is, it is claimed that the Frazzled.rip video is still being circulated on the dark web and that the authorities are unable to scrub it from the internet due to people continuing to re-upload it. I have read numerous comments in Reddit and on Twitter threads 
from people claiming to have seen the footage, but every time I prod them for more information, they just repeat what is already known, and they can never give an onion link or any information on where they saw it other than the dark web, otherwise known as Tor, which stands for the onion router, and I've exchanged messages with people who claim to have seen the video on Tor, but apparently aren't even familiar with what an onion link is. Now, let's just play some audio from a guy who claims to be a police officer and who is adamant that he has seen two of the videos uploaded by Peter Dowlish, and he describes what he saw. So let's listen to that. So I'll go into this, but I want people to know if you have children in the room, you might think about seriously taking them out for this part. Um, Use your own discretion. If you don't think you can listen to this, don't. Uh, I will go into this in graphic detail. It's very disturbing what I saw. There's two different frazzle drip videos that I saw throwing up and retching and crying and a lot of them just couldn't live with it. They actually saw way more than I saw. And mine was bad enough. A lot of them, I don't know if they actually committed suicide or they were suicided, but a lot of the police that saw this aren't alive anymore to it. But the purpose of this is twofold, to bring up a demonic through the blood of the child. It's a witchcraft. The child's in the pentagram circle symbol thing they're doing the incantation and then they start torturing this young person that is in one case chained to a tree and in the other case to a bed and the one with the bed had a doctor in it and it's the one with the tree which was a 10 year old girl chained to a tree um was out in a forest area. It looked like an area I'm somewhat familiar. It looked like an area I know on the East Coast somewhere in the big forest like you see in the Blair Witch Project with those endless forests that go, if you don't have a compass and know how to orienteer, you get lost as heck. And so it's some big forested area. It's not trees like on the West Coast. It's more Eastern where you see more deciduous trees and less pine. And so she's chained to a small tree, this 10-year-old girl, and Uma Abedin and Hillary Clinton, Hillary Rodham Clinton, take this girl and they start doing the fire and the, the symbol and then they start cutting her up. And in the process of this, they cut her fate on both of them. The one with the bed, the doctor does it, but they do it really crudely. The doctor does it surgically, but they cut her face off. And then Hillary wears it dancing around the girl laughing and giggling and they're all laughing and they take the blood and cover themselves they're naked and they cover themselves in the blood excuse me it's getting a little (laughs) woozy and um they laugh and dance around her and she's screaming why are you doing this to me and finally she's just begging for them please just kill me and then once they have the child sufficiently terrorized which they did um in this case, this child had a lot of fortitude, so they, to get her, that wasn't enough to get her really terrified. They, like they do in seppuku in Japanese martial arts, harikiri is the term they used in World War II. They cut her with a Z across her stomach and pulled out her intestine. And then, <clears throat> um, excuse me, I gotta take a drink of water. Then um, once she was sufficiently terrified, 
and it's still alive, they reach up with looks like some kind of forcep kind of bent, very slender at the end into the nose and up into into jamming it up into the brain. They know how to knew how to do this and they ate each one ate half of it. Hillary offered it Hillary did it and offered it to Uma and she took bit half of it and then the walnut as they call it. And if that's real, then obviously there really are no words to adequately describe the wretchedness of it all. I mean, we all have our opinions on how truly horrible of a person Hillary Rodham Clinton is and the rest of her clan, but I don't think we know the full extent of the evilness that she's involved in. That is, if she's even still alive. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard about the secret military tribunals, but apparently these military tribunals are kept from the public eye and represent a parallel world of military law and justice. The rumors are that high-profile figures from politicians to A-list celebrities to people who we've never even heard of have faced justice behind closed doors and away from the general public's consciousness. The idea is that these politicians are not immune from the law. It's just that the standards are higher much higher, and the proceedings against them are extremely sensitive due to the massive corruption that they're all involved in, hence why it's very secretive. And apparently, these high-profile politicians, leaders in the military, bankers, scientists, celebrities, and the like that are convicted in the military tribunals are sent to a specific area of Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, the same place where the U.S. sends their hand-picked terrorists, as we all know. But as of March of 2019, there were 40 prisoners being held there, with only one having been convicted of an actual crime. 26 others were, and still are, being held without a charge and without a trial. Those people have been dubbed forever prisoners. The media never talks about these people, and there is a a clear indication that this place, Gitmo as it's known, is involved in major human rights violations on a daily basis for something like 21 years now. And if anyone remembers what the U.S. military did to the prisoners at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, then you can imagine what goes down at Gitmo. And interestingly, despite puppets like Obama saying that Guantanamo Bay would be closed and dismantled back in 2009, well, it wasn't, and it won't be, because they are all liars, and they're actually building it larger. Even when Trump was the puppet, he allocated $500 million to its expansion. Yes, half of a billion dollars to expand Gitmo. As of December of 2023, the Biden administration has continued to build onto Gitmo, and there are said to be 30 detainees, as they now call them. Of course, it's virtually impossible to believe anything our officials tell us for many reasons, But if you look at aerial photos from around 2009 and compare them to photos taken as recently as 2023, you'll notice that the place has been continually expanded in size, like 20-fold, like 100-fold. It's just massive. And why Cuba allows it? I mean, you you have to ask that question, right? Ask the question, why does Cuba allow that? I don't know why. Fuck. But here's a question. What is the purpose of these expansions when the number of detainees are decreasing? Well, many say it's for these military tribunals. Who knows? I mean, it would make sense because think about it. 
If they allowed someone like Hillary Clinton or George Bush or Nancy Pelosi or any of those fucks to be tried in a public criminal court, can you imagine what kind of shit would be uncovered if the prosecution legitimately did their job and we lived in a perfect world? It would be amazing, but that would never happen. Ever. So, bringing it back to Comet, let's talk about the guy who allegedly hacked into the computer server at Comet Ping Pong because it's pretty damn interesting. And I remember hearing about this like once back when the, all of this was going down, and then it just sort of went away like everything else. The guy goes by the name Big Fish, and I won't say his real name because I don't think he wants that attention anymore, which is fine. Completely understandable. Big Fish did an interview in 2017. I believe, with an independent researcher journalist named Titus Frost, where he explained that he had hacked their servers in late November of 2016 and came to a password-protected page. He said he was able to get around that security measure and discovered that there were zip files that contained numerous videos of child pornography. He said he reported this to the FBI and they took down his statements. And roughly four days later, on December 4th, is when a guy with an AR-15 walked calmly into Kama Ping Pong, walked past a few customers and staff, and fired off one shot through an electronically locked door near the back of the interior of the building. Reports say that he fired between one and three shots, but we know that one went through that door. The door was to his small closet that contained a bunch of maintenance stuff and the computer tower with the hard drive in question. Not only did Megyn Kelly from Fox News report in the shooting, but old lover of children himself, James Elephantis, admitted that the gunman shot through the locking mechanism on the door, and the bullet ended up striking the hard drive just perfectly, wherein all of the data on it was irretrievable, according to authorities. First, no. A single 5.56 or 223 bullet through a hard drive is not going to delete the data. Second, in the news coverage of James showing the damage, you can clearly see that the locking mechanism is higher up on the door, around five feet or more, and James shows exactly where the computer sits or sat, which is basically on the floor, right beneath it. Therefore, Edgar Welch would have to have held the gun unnaturally high and in a very downward angle in order to have struck the hard drive so perfectly. And why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just shoot the mechanism straight on? The whole point is to unlock the door, right? So shoot the mechanism, open the door, but that's not what he did. He purposely shot it at an angle. Makes no sense. Unless the official narrative is complete bullshit. Plus, what the hell are the chances that some random dude who's never been in that building being able to just walk in one day and walk directly to one door with a one computer restored and shoots off one round that travels through the door and just so happens to strike the one hard drive and the one computer tower, which just so happened to have been reported to the FBI only four days earlier to have contained a trove of child pornography? What are the chances? So, the next day, Big Fish woke up and saw the news about the shooting. And that is when he called the D.C. police who connected him to Detective Joaquin Stevens, who seemed to be interested in the information. The detective asked him to email him all of the evidence that he had, which he promptly sent. Then, on December 7th, 2016, Big Fish returned home from work and found that all of his mail in his mailbox had been opened but left inside the mailbox. Then, on December 16th, he was about to go to bed around 9.30 p.m., Something loud woke him up. He thought he heard a knock on the door, so he got up to check it out. 
And the way his house is set up is that his bedroom is down the hallway in the direct sight of the door. And so when he got up and turned the light on, the person saw him coming down the hallway and they just took off. They jumped in the car and drove away really fast. So it turns out that whoever this person was seemed to have driven their car into one of his trucks, basically T-boned it, which caused a lot of damage before he started to walk towards the front door. Big Fish thought that all of that was odd, but apparently didn't think much of it. He then emailed Detective Stevens about updates on the evidence he provided, and the detective got the email, but responded with nothing typed and no attachments, just a blank email. And to add support to his claims, he provided a chain of email screenshots to and from Detective Stevens. So those, they're there. I mean, you can see them. But this was when Big Fish started getting the cold shoulder from the detective. And that's when he figured that the detective was told to stop looking into the investigation and talking with Big Fish by someone higher up. A couple months later, he was heading to work in the morning and he noticed two guys in a green Subaru just sitting in the car. Again, he thought nothing of it. He said he went to work, came home, noticed that they were still there, but apparently he was unperturbed by it and just went inside and basically went to bed, which is a part I find kind of odd. But right about 3.30 a.m., he says he heard sirens all over the cul-de-sac that he lived in. So he went outside to see what was happening and said that there were cops everywhere and they were trained on this one guy on the embankment trying to hide in some bushes that were very close to his house. And he was wearing camouflage gear and a black ski mask. The next day, he found out who the guy was, and his name was Travis Hintz, Travis S. Hintz, and he lived two states away from Big Fish. He also found that he was connected to the fundamentalist Mormon FLDS church, who are super into polygamy, and I'm not sure of the connection, but that's what he said. Travis explained that he was only in the area looking for unlocked cars to steal from, and nothing came of it. I mean, that's kind of odd. Why is this, why is this Mormon dude going around car hopping? What's going on there? Later on, another vehicle of Big Fish would be damaged. So it appears that he was getting the old escalating harassment treatment to get him to stop his involvement with the investigations. It's kind of the same thing that happened with Ryan O'Neill when he was digging deep into the Pegasus Museum. But in the meantime, the Comet Ping Pong webmaster removed the login page, and then they ended up rebuilding the entire website. But here's something that is just inexplicable. About one hour before the attack at Comet Ping Pong, the traffic camera that is always pointing toward Comet was redirected to face a light pole or something that virtually blocked the entire view. So that's pretty fucking weird. And intentional. Again, what are the odds of that happening on the one day that this one guy decides to go do this? So now, that brings us to the shooter. He was 28-year-old Edgar Madison Welch from Salisbury, North Carolina. And his planned actions would be the hypothetical nail in the coffin for putting an end to the mainstream media coverage of anything Pizzagate-related, including Comet Ping Pong and James Elephantis, who was at that point portrayed as the number one victim of all time in Washington, D.C. Once Edgar carried out his mission, the police were notified immediately. It was almost like they were aware of it before it even happened. Either way, after he left the building, he was arrested by police who were waiting outside for him without incident. A search of his vehicle would uncover two other weapons, a handgun and a shotgun. He told them that he was just there to investigate if Comet had a bunch of children in cages and chained to walls in the basement and all that shit, which was all part of the false narrative to discredit the story of Pizzagate, which would work to an extent... But over the years, more facts have come out and more people are talking about this. 
Edgar would eventually be sentenced to around four years in prison for assault with a dangerous weapon. Six other charges were dropped, including carrying a pistol without a license, transporting firearms over state lines, and unlawful discharge of a firearm. So he has since been released, I believe in 2020, 2021. But let's get into him a little bit. In October of 2016, two months before the incident, he had struck a 13-year-old boy with his car, which caused significant injuries, and the kid had to be transported by helicopter to a hospital in critical condition. Edgar was not charged at the time, and there was a pending investigation. But let's look a little deeper. As it turned out, Edgar Madison Welch was not only the shooter of Comet Ping Pong, he was and is also an actor and production assistant and has an IMDb page. He's worked on a couple independent films called The Mill and A Tale About Bootlegging, two very, very exciting titles. In 2009, he had an acting role in the film The Bleeding. In 2011, he worked on the short called The Mute. But the interesting thing about this is this. Right after he was arrested and getting a lot of heat, his IMDb page was mysteriously changed. One of his acting roles was removed. That role was in the 2005 short titled Something About Pizza, in which he played none other than a gunman. I mean, the parallels. So why was his IMDb page changed after he was arrested? That's kind of interesting. That's kind of weird. I mean, anyway. He also lived in Haiti for a while, which is where his father was the executive director for Protect a Child Incorporated, which is a nonprofit organization that is said to prevent child abductions and abuse. Interesting. Now let's look into Edgar's father. Harry Welch Jr. is a former police officer and expert firearms instructor. He and his family decided to post up in Haiti right after the earthquake in 2010, where the Clintons further devastated the country with their greed and corruption. And at the same time that the friend, Laura Silsby, was caught trying to traffic at least 33 children from Haiti into the Dominican Republic to be transferred to the United States without permits or documents. And according to his own IMDb page, he was, quote, elected president of the North Carolina Crime Stoppers Association for two terms, served as executive director for Protect a Child, a national nonprofit organization to prevent abuse and abduction of children, and appointed by Governor Jim Martin to the Governor's Commission on Child Victimization, end quote. He also owns a film company. The film company is called Forever Young Productions, which I think is still up. And if you search his bio, you'll see that he has connections to some high-level people in the Department of Defense as well as a U.S. president. And he even obtained a top-secret clearance. He says, quote, In 1990... I was invited by the U.S. Defense Department to go to Europe and watch war games with joint forces of the U.S. Army and our allies in Western Germany. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan selected me to join 15 other broadcasters to visit U.S. military installations in Colorado. We received national clearance from the U.S. Defense Department to visit the Cheyenne Mountain Nuclear Bunker, the alternate command center for NORAD. End quote. Harry also served two terms on the Boy Scouts of America Council for Central North Carolina. And he and his wife, Terry, are both Boy Scout counselors. He's also served as a deacon of his church for around 20 years or so, and has taught Sunday school for around 25. Furthermore, 
He was trained in firearms by Colonel Rex Applegate. The following comes from Wikipedia. In 1941, Applegate was developing armed and unarmed close quarter combat courses for the U.S. Army at Camp Ritchie when he was recruited by Wild Bill Donovan for the OSS, specifically to build and run what was called the School for Spies and Assassins, the location of which is now Camp David. Applegate was said to be the source and inspiration for several of Ian Fleming's characters in his James Bond novels, and we all know that Ian Fleming was a a spy himself. And the OSS, for those who don't know, was the Office of Strategic Services, which was the CIA before the CIA. So there are a lot of people who are saying that Edgar Madison Welch was a plant that was sent to Comet Ping Pong to create a dangerous situation which weaved perfectly into the legacy media's narrative that there was absolutely no credence, not a shred of truth to the entire Pizzagate scandal and that anyone who was conducting their own investigations and unraveling clue after clue were they were the ones to blame for this dangerous situation. All right. I'm going to mention one last thing here, and then I'll close this out. And it brings us right back to James Elephantus. James is also great friends with a guy named Oliver Miller. Oliver Miller is an American citizen who moved to Berlin, Germany in 2000. He owns, or at least used to own, two businesses that were in Berlin. One of these places was called Dr. Pong, which, according to this article that I was able to find about it, was where young people could hang out and they had these special events where the older folk could, quote, have the table tennis action in the afternoon and explore, end quote. In the same article, they say that you can hang out in community spaces where you find yourself with other people who share similar interests and they finish out with, quote, share friends, end quote. Oliver Miller is an architect from San Francisco who first visited Berlin in 1993 and fell in love with the underground culture. He returned in 2000 and started to hold unsanctioned ping-pong parties in abandoned buildings in East Berlin, which is apparently a common practice there. In 2010, he and two friends started writing essays on the undeveloped, neglected, and abandoned architecture, including the subterranean spaces such as tunnels. Dr. Pong was located just half a mile from the second business, a place called Nalu Diner, which would close its doors in 2018 for unspecified reasons. Nalu Diner was opened in partnership with none other than James Alephantis in 2012. Miller would make a visit to Washington, D.C. sometime after 2012, and to honor that visit, James started a sausage festival which is held at Bucks Fishing and Camping. Oliver's friends would go on to publish a 314-page essay on underground structures, which included past, present, and future plans for the abandoned tunnels under DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. And at the very end of the essay, they gave a special thanks to Oliver Miller, a.k.a. Dr. Pong, for hospitality in Berlin, and James Elephantis for patronage above and beyond. In a 2008 New York Times article about Oliver and Dr. Pong in Berlin, they mentioned that the mayor of Berlin was openly gay and had rolled out an official gathering of sadomasochist conventioners who praised their weekends as pure joie de vivre, basically meaning the joy of living. The mayor, Mayor Klaus Weverit, liked to boast the following, quote, We are poor, but sexy, 
end quote. Priorities, right? It's become America's standard. Be poor and be sexy. That's what they want. That's what that's what these elite want everyone to be, poor and sexy. But the article also mentions another American who moved to Berlin in 1999 after studying film at UCLA, Mark Siegel. I'll read this next part verbatim because it's sort of relevant to the U.S. today. Quote, Siegel fell into the local theater scene and with friends, including Daniel Hendrickson, his former boyfriend, founded a performance art collective called Cheap. The troupe became known for its queer sensibility and eventually attracted the attention and funding of the German National Children's Theater, which wanted Cheap to produce a piece for kids. It used the opportunity to lure Vaginal Davis, a drag performer from Los Angeles, whom they cast as the guest star of the children's production to Berlin. End quote. So as it looks, Germany was doing weird cross-dressing and drag to influence young children 20-plus years before the United States thought it was a good idea. Check out the Kentler experiment. It was carried out by the German psychologist, sexologist, and professor of social education at the University of Hanover, Kentler. Helmut Kentler. Look him up. The project, as it was called, was fully funded by Berlin, which began in the 1970s and lasted until the early 2000s. It consisted of taking poor and helpless orphan children and giving them to foster parents. Sounds great, right? Well, the foster parents were well-known pedophiles, some of the worst. But in 1988, Helmut Kentler made a public statement saying that the experiment was a complete success. So I don't know. Make of that what you will. Just another connection. But I think we will wrap this up here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for listening, and I truly hope you enjoyed this series and my voice. I just want to say, look, I'm just presenting things that have already been investigated and reported on. It's up to the listener to do their own research and come to their own conclusions. With that said, thank you all. Thank you all so much for listening. Pitch me a dollar here or there. You know, help me out with the show. Donate. Get on. Buy me a coffee. Do a subscription-based thing. Um, I don't know. Just help me out with the show, please. It would be greatly appreciated. And don't forget to share this show with your friends and family. Follow me on Twitter, where I always post ridiculous stuff about conspiracies and crazy shit happening in the world today. And next week, I will be interviewing 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason Robert W. Sullivan IV, and we'll be talking about symbology, numerology, Aleister Crowley, some cinema and the occult, and probably a lot of other fascinating things. So stay tuned for that. All right, everyone. Wherever you are, good morning, good evening, or good night.